You can open your Bibles, church, to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is where we have made ourselves to after a brief um, brief departure from the book of Isaiah last night, but not really, uh, as we looked at Luke chapter 2 and as we kind of tied together all the things that we have already been seeing as part of God's promise. And if you weren't with us last night, this, this morning is, is, could very much be considered a, a part two of what we looked at at our candlelight service last night, but I'll try to, my best to help catch you up to speed with what we talked about, what we looked at there And I mentioned it in my prayer a while ago, and that was that we looked at last night the promise and purpose. And that's what we've been looking at, really. We haven't put it in those terms, per se, but we've been looking at consistently throughout the book of Isaiah, God's promise of a coming Messiah who would set things right, who through this chosen one, he was purposing to redeem for himself his people. And not only that, but to re-identify his people, to change who was identified as his people from reducing them down to a covenant, uh, excuse me, a remnant, to then making them a new covenant people extending not just from those who were born uh, as Jewish, but to those who were Gentile as well. And that includes us. And so this is just a beautiful opportunity we have this morning to celebrate the birth of Christ together as a church family on Christmas Day. And I've been looking forward to this for quite some time, ever since I saw it on the calendar. And if that hasn't been obvious, as I've repeated that and said that multiple times throughout this Advent season, then uh, I hope it's obvious now because uh, this, I believe this only happens every 11 years or so is, is how often Christmas Day falls on a Sunday. And so I certainly look forward to celebrating the next Christmas Sunday together as a church family as well. But I want us to savor and enjoy this one now. So uh, we opened presents this morning. We didn't open presents, excuse me, but we received some presents this morning at our house. And uh, my daughter told me there's one left that she hasn't gotten yet this morning. And that's for Daddy to preach short uh, is the present <laughs> That she is really wanting. I think I'm going to disappoint her because I don't know what her definition of short is. But uh, today, some of you will receive gifts that you very much wanted but didn't really need, right? This is, this is one of the realities that we face every Christmas. We get gifts that we desperately wanted, but did we really need it? Probably not, right? Some of us will receive gifts that we didn't know we wanted until we got it, right? Or we didn't even know we needed it until we got it. Now, what is also likely to happen today is that you will receive a gift that you did not want, so something totally out of left field that makes you say, what were they thinking, right? Like, I've been on the giving and receiving end of those kinds of gifts, and I think we probably all have, right? But what... I want us to see this morning and consider as we look at the realities that we see in uh, the birth narrative of Christ, as we look at everything that we've been seeing in the promise of Christ's coming and then the purpose of Christ's coming, what I think we see here is that Jesus is that gift. 
He's the gift that we absolutely did not want. We were in our, our selfishness, in our sinfulness, wholly content and putting ourselves on the throne of our lives. But we desperately needed the gift of Christ. And that is what God provided in Christ. The gift that we did not want, but the gift that we desperately needed. And that is what we see. I'm going to ask you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read from Isaiah chapter 61. Again, as we have made our way here, we take another leap this morning to the chapter 61 from chapter 42 last week, but verses 1 through 3 is our text for today. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we consider once again these words from your prophet Isaiah, your words spoken through him. Pray that you would help us to truly, just even a small amount, grasp all that is wrapped up in this Christmas story. Where we see Christ become flesh to dwell among us, that we might know you, the gift that we did not want but desperately needed, which you so graciously provided at the exact right time. And may that stir our confidence in your sovereign will to sustain us to the end for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So last Sunday, our final point was that Christmas is the definitive action of God setting His love on the unlovable. Christmas is the definitive action of God. So that's the, that's the real emphasis there. It's that the Lord is the one who is making this happen. He is the one who accomplished this. This was not something that just occurred and then God used it, but rather that God ordained every bit of the Christmas story. It's the definitive action of God setting His love on the unlovable. In case you didn't know where you fit in that, that unlovable part, that's us, right? So I would like to make an addendum to that point, just kind of a, a little, not a correction, but adding on to it and saying that Christmas is the definitive action of God setting His love on those who refuse to be loved by God. See, in our sinfulness, we absolutely refused, shunned, turned away from God and said, we don't want you, we've got this under control, right? 
The peace of Christmas comes to all those with whom he is pleased. We've looked at that time and again. We looked at it last night. But none of us at our core or within our flesh want to please God. We don't want to be loved by God. But Christmas shines the light of God's salvation, which breaks through the dark shadows of our hearts and opens our eyes to his grace. And this is what the Christmas story reveals to us. That was the the introduction to our candlelight service last night was the first 14 verses of John 1, that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. So here we have the the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, co-equal with God the Father from eternity, stepping into human flesh, into our brokenness, our sin, our pain, so that he might shine the light of the gospel and begin the process of making all things new. We began our journey. I'll ask you to turn. We're going to do a lot of of looking all over. We're going to do a lot of looking back at what we've already seen. You can turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. So just several pages there to your left where we began our journey this Advent season. And this morning, as I was saying, we're going to uh, venture all over God's Word as we look back on what we've already seen. But I also want us to see the many instances where the New Testament authors explicitly state the purpose of the coming of Christ. So we're looking back on the promise and we're looking again in the New Testament, uh, across the New Testament, to the purpose So that we realize, and one of the other things that I want us to be challenged with this morning is that Christmas is not confined to this month on the calendar or this day, but that we live every day in celebration of God's provision and action at Christmas. So looking back here, Isaiah 7, again, this is where we began our journey this Advent season, looking at verses 13 through 14, we see there, as we saw several weeks ago, And he said, so this is God speaking, or excuse me, the prophet speaking. He said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So if you'll remember, this King Ahaz was the king at this time. And God gave him open invitation to ask whatever sign he needed to give confidence and assurance and hope to the people that this coming invasion of their enemies surrounding them was going to work out for God's glory and for their good. And Ahaz self-righteously refused. He said, I I will not put my Lord to the test. And so this is what God says in response to Ahaz. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. And we highlighted there the significance of the Lord using this as an opportunity to remind him that you are of the house and the lineage of David. Have I not promised that I will provide one from your line to reign over my people forever? Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So not only have you wearied my people with your terrible leadership, leading them away from my ways, away from my word, But you have also now wearied me by continuing your disobedience before my face. 
And then in verse 14, he says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So if you don't ask for a sign, I'm going to provide a sign according to my plan anyways. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Which, of course, we know means God with us. So in Christmas, the Lord decisively acted on his promise, accomplishing his eternal will to redeem sinners for his glory. This is Christmas. The Lord decisively action, acting on his promise, so being in complete faithfulness to everything that he had said, accomplishing his eternal will, his will which exists outside of our reality, our, outside of our time frame, to redeem sinners for his glory. So never should we wonder what the purpose of Christmas was and is. God's glory made known to us. God's love made manifest for us and God's grace enacted upon us. This is Christmas. We were lawless rebels whom God set his love on while we were still in sin. And so that brings me this morning, hopefully you grabbed an outline on your way in. You see the first point which I've already provided there was that we needed a king. We've looked repeatedly in our looking through Isaiah. I've, I've repeatedly drawn on this analogy of these, this portrait that Isaiah displays of Christ. And we, we've kind of altered that to say that it's not three portraits, but really it's one portrait. The portrait is Christ, but we're seeing it from three different perspectives. Christ as king, Christ as servant, Christ as conqueror. And so the first thing we saw was that we needed a king. The main thing to note here is that we needed a king outside of ourselves. That's, that's the big key there. Because we needed a king and we provided a king for ourselves and the king that we provided was us. We have all been born into this life with a sense of entitlement to the throne. We want to rule, so we do. We shun God, supplant Him as ruler, sit on the throne of our lives. And we needed a divine sovereign king that would perfectly juxtapose to the false kings of this world and all the kings of sinfulness that we set ourselves to be. And so we needed not just a king to rule from afar, but we needed a king to be with us. It's the next point, the subpoint there on your outline. And that's what we see here is that God provided and said that he would provide, promised to provide a king that would not be ruling from afar, but a king that would be with us in the most intimate way. How would he be with us? Because he would be born of us by God's divine design, giving us hope. 1 John 3, 8 tells us of God's purpose in sending Christ to be with us. If you want to make a note of that, 1 John 3, we see whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So those who make a practice, live a life of sin, continue in sinful activity is of the devil. That's pretty clear right there. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning is what John says. The reason the Son of God appeared, so that's Christmas, this is in 1 John 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
So no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Well, this was John's emphasis in John 1, saying that he came into the world, and the world was created through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to those who did believe in him, he gave the right to be called children of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. And this is the purpose, that we might be born again, the purpose of Christmas. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to be with us, to be born of us, to show us that we needed to be born again. And that's the next point there that brings this to light is to ransom us. We needed a king to ransom us. This is the the reason the Son of God appeared, to destroy the works of the devil, to take us back, right? This provides us with peace. Peace between us and God is what Jesus provided is what the Christmas story illuminates for us. A peace which we did not deserve and could not establish, but a peace which he pursued and enacted for us. To quote the late R.C. Sproul, In our natural state, we are completely unwilling and morally incapable of coming to Christ. And so what do we see in the Christmas story, church? That we were completely unwilling and unable, but he came to us. Therefore, church, we needed a king who would ransom us for his glory and our good. And we continued our journey through Isaiah to chapter 11. If you'll turn there, we looked at chapter 9 next, but we looked at chapter 9 last night where we saw that The light was coming into the world, the theme which John clearly reflects in his introduction to his gospel. But the next place I want to point us this morning is to uh, Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 2, where we see, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So I know we've slept since we looked at this, but again, the illustration here was that God was saying that this Uh, Assyrian army that was raining terror on his people was but an axe and a saw in his hand. And so as the Assyrian army was puffing themselves up and and bragging and boasting of their might, God said, you're nothing but the axe and the saw in my hand, which I am using to accomplish my will. And so this is what he said for his people, that though things seem bleak now, though the forest has been chopped down, a growth, a shoot will come forth from the stump that has been cut off. The stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. You see, church, we needed a king to be with us, to ransom us, and to rule us. He rules us as he reigns over us as king, the one who the Spirit of the Lord rests upon, this divine child king that came to us. He rightly realigns our joy. 
So whether we realize it or not, we desire to rule. But we also desire to be ruled. The problem is we attempt to take up that title for ourselves. So that's where the the conflict comes in our flesh, in our sinfulness. So rather than being ruled by our maker, we seek to rule that we might find joy in what pleases us. And so this king came to be with us, to ransom us, and to rule us that we might have eternal hope, lasting peace, and overabundance of joy as He displayed His love for us by coming to be with us. The next thing that we have seen abundantly clear that we needed was that we needed a servant. And the next place where that that, uh, angle of the portrait, that perspective of the portrait, so we've seen the perspective of king, the next place was the perspective of servant. In that place, we look to Isaiah 42, to the first of Isaiah's servant songs. So if you'll turn to Isaiah 42, and there in verse 6, we read this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So this Here in this servant song, we noted that throughout, starting in verse, uh, excuse me, starting in chapter 40, Isaiah begins to use this language of servant. But he he uses it interchangeably because he, he talks about the nation of Israel as the servant of God. But here he begins to talk about the servant in a different way, as a as an individual person. And we began, we begin verse four, chapter 42 with verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. And so we saw that we needed a servant. Why? We needed a servant to reconcile us. The Lord says to his servant here, I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand, keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nation. So this servant comes bearing with him a new covenant. And he comes to reconcile us. Christ has reconciled us for the glory of God that we may take up the ministry of reconciliation. That all those whom he is calling to himself may be reconciled for his glory. And this is the paradigm shift of the gospel. This is the paradigm shift of Christmas. That we no longer regard ourselves as king. Why? Because the one who came as king also came as servant. He came gentle and lowly to be the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So that we no longer regard ourselves as king. We no longer regard ourselves as more important. But now we humbly submit in obedience to the responsibility he has given us of making his name known among the nations. We needed a servant to reconcile us. We needed a servant to confirm God's word. This is the overwhelming emphasis in John's gospel, introduction to John's gospel, is that the light has come, but the light has come in the form of God's Word more fully confirmed. 
perfectly lived out. The promise perfectly fulfilled in the person of Christ. This is what we see, we looked at last night, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves is what, how Paul starts that off. And talking about the humbleness and how to live out the gospel. And the reality of the gospel and what that looks like in our lives. And the, the example that has been set for us of servanthood is Christ. Who though he was in the form of God. So one with God eternally existent, co-equal with God the Father, existing from eternity, though he was in the form of God, did not consider that equality with God a thing to be grasped or lorded over. But rather he humbled himself to the point of obedience and even to the point of death on a cross. He stepped down into flesh. This is the confirmation of God's word. From Genesis on, we see the promise that the seed from the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And this is God's fulfillment of that as we continue through as God's, God's promise of Messiah is, is so clearly and evidently shown throughout all of Scripture. And it's shouted here at the coming of Christ to say, hey, this is what he said. He's made himself known. We see this also in Hebrews chapter 3. If you want to turn there, I'd encourage you to do so, or it'll be on the screen. But it's just so beautifully portrayed here in Hebrews. This purpose of Christ's coming. And how the author of Hebrews illustrates this for us by walking through the entirety of Scripture. In the storyline of Scripture, Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. So did you catch that? He was faithful. He was obedient. He was a servant. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And so we needed a servant to confirm God's word. To show us that all these shadows that we had. Moses as great of a leader as he was, as obedient and faithful to the Lord as he was, was but a shadow. That Joshua, just a shadow. Abraham, just a shadow. David, just a shadow. But Christ is the reality. So therefore, holy brothers is what we see there. In Christ we have the true and better Adam. For he is the seed of the woman promised in Genesis. In Christ, we have the perfect fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. He is the better depiction of the serpent that Moses lifted on a staff. He is the better Moses, the better David. He is the word made flesh. 
to dwell among us, fulfill what we could not, and die that we may be made right, resurrected that we might live in the light of His resurrection. This is Jesus, our divine child King. We needed a servant to reconcile us, to confirm God's Word, and to manifest God's love, to give us the the perfect depiction, the perfect model of God's love. We looked at this just last week in 1 John 4, verses 7 through 10, where we see, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So we, we bear the imprint of God's love on ourselves if you have been imprinted by God's love. Anyone who does not love does not know God. So if you know God, love God, it's evident. If you don't, that too is evident. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. So it was, was shown, was depicted, was made a reality that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be that atoning sacrifice. That is, did you catch that? That is Christmas. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son. There's Christmas to be the propitiation for our sins. This was the purpose of His sending. So this divine child king grew to be that perfect propitiation for our sins so that He could go to that inner curtain and make intercession on our behalf so He could be our perfect high priest, greater than Moses, deserving greater glory than Moses, the better, more perfect Adam. So we needed a king, we needed a servant, and finally, for our text this morning shows us, we needed a conqueror. Return back again to Isaiah 61. I know you've probably been saying in your mind, when's he going to get to that text that he said was today? We needed a king, we needed a servant, and we needed a conqueror. Isaiah 61 Verse 1, as we read a while ago. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So this is the purpose of God's promised one. So Again, two emphasis here, same as last night, the promise and the purpose. And here we see those beautifully displayed. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. This is the Lord's anointed. This is His chosen one. This is the servant. This is the king. Well, this servant king comes with a purpose, and that purpose is to conquer, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. So that which is broken, I'm binding it up. To proclaim liberty to the captives. So those who are in captivity, freedom, freedom is coming. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. 
So this was a sign for those who are in bondage still in this day. We're still in the context of the Babylonian exile, as we discussed last week. But this was a sign of deliverance for those who are in bondage in that Babylonian exile. That freedom was to come. A reminder that God was at work in this incredibly painful, excruciating season. But that God was using it for his glory. This was the shadow. And the reality is Christ. The reality is Christmas. This is the very passage which Jesus himself quotes in Luke chapter 4 as he comes into the synagogue in Nazareth. And he identifies himself as the one who is the fulfillment of this passage. See, Christ as conqueror eternally reminds us that he finishes all that he begins. He finishes what he begins. The one who sovereignly held all of our yesterdays, sustains us now, and holds all of our tomorrows. He comes to set free those in bondage to sin and death. The shadow was that he was going to set free his people in bondage to Babylonian exile. The reality is that he comes to set free from much more than earthly captivity but the captivity of our souls. He comes to set free us from sin and death. This is the purpose of Christmas, that God would be glorified to liberate us from the slavery of our sin, which is the next sub-point there on your outline. That God would be glorified to liberate us from the slavery of our sin. This is what we see in Galatians 4. As Paul is talking to the churches dispersed among the region that was Galatia, he encourages them with this. And talking about those who are enslaved to their sin. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, this Galatians 4 verse 1, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything. So he's, he's talking about family ties here, that if you're an heir, if you're still a child, you're still enslaved to the rule of your master. Though he's entitled to everything, he's the owner of everything, it's his in the future, but in the reality, he's still enslaved. Verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Verse 3, this is where Paul ties this analogy together. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So we were enslaved to our sinfulness. You may, if you are here this morning and you don't know Christ, you're not, don't have a relationship with Him, you don't know it, but you're a slave. The world outside doesn't know it, but they're slaves. They may look like they have freedom, Like they can just fulfill the desires of their heart, do what they want to do, but they're enslaved. And this is what Paul says in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. It's Christmas. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
this was Christmas, that he came at the fullness of time. When God the Father ordained it was right and true and ready, that is when he came. And it is the same with his second coming, that when God ordains it is right and true and ready, so it will be. And so just as his first coming was guaranteed and promised and purposed for God's glory, so it will be for the second. So when the fullness of time comes, God will once again send forth his Son to redeem all those who he has called out from under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Paul continues that analogy because he's saying here, we receive adoption as the firstborn son. We receive adoption as the one who is due the heir, right? Verse 5, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So because of Christmas and because of Christ's obedience and because there is no deterring him from the cross, we receive all that he gained for us. And this is what we see there in verse 2 of Isaiah 61. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God. This is the hard truth of Christmas that I've tried to help make as clear as possible this Advent season. Almost every week I've tried to make it obvious that Christmas comes with the declaration of peace and hope and joy and love. But it's for those in whom He delights. And so if your delight and your joy and your hope and your peace are found in anything other than Him, then that hope and that peace and that love and that joy of Christmas are not yours right now. He comes both to liberate those who are in bondage to sin, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and to prepare for the declaration of God's vengeance. This is the sobering reality, the hard truth of Christmas. You can't have one without the other. And it, it just doesn't work like that. Those who shun God and supplant Him as king remain in the darkness of their sin. They remain under God's vengeance. And get this, church, He's glorified in both of those things. He's glorified in the proclamation of his favor. He's glorified in the day of his vengeance. And that next part, that last part there, verse 2, which continues into verse 3. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, so that they may be planted firm. In what? In righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And this is the purpose of the coming of God's promised, chosen, and provided one. This is a reality for a lot of people. In this context, is that those who are mourning now in the Babylonian exile, that's the context of what, when this is being said, 
that rejoicing is coming, that He's going to replace your mourning, your sackcloth, and your ashes with a beautiful headdress, that instead of mourning, you'll have oil of gladness. Instead of a faint spirit, you'll have a garment of praise. For many, it might seem like this is not a Christmas in which you want to rejoice. There's been a hard year. That mourning is on your doorstep. It's a reality for you now. And it's a reality for all of us in a broken world. We will face mourning, hardship, difficulty. But the promise and the provision of Christmas is that he takes that mourning and places it on its head in the person of Christ. And that he replaces everything that comes with that mourning with everything, all the fullness of gladness and joy and hope and peace in him. And so if you're mourning this Christmas, rejoice, for he is taking your mourning and turning it into rejoicing. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Why? And this is the summation of all of it. Why, church? That he may be glorified. This is what we see in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says this to the church at Corinth. From now on, Therefore, talking about how Christ has redeemed us from the life of flesh, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18, 2 Corinthians 5. Don't miss this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So that is in sending Christ and accomplishing his purposes in Christ, he reconciled, he brought us back to himself and gave us, well now hold on a second, what did he give us? Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So the grace was that he reconciled us. He brought us back. He provided a way where there was no way. He sent Christ to be our king, our servant, our conqueror. That's the the reconciling. And then what did he do in that? He gave us something, a responsibility, a ministry. And that ministry is what? The ministry of reconciliation. Made this statement earlier in our Advent season that Christ came and preached his church into existence. Why? That his church might preach his word and grow. Verse 19 that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We have a job, a responsibility, a purpose, a calling, a commission. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
We desperately needed all of this. We needed a king, a servant, a conqueror, and we got all of that in one. We were wandering in the gloomy darkness of our sin, and he burst forth a light, a beacon to illuminate our path to him. God graciously provided our every need in Christ according to his plan, by his will, for his glory, and for our good in him. He refused to let us set our hope, our peace, our joy, our love anywhere else. So he perfectly displayed all of those things for us that we might find those in him. He acted according to his will, by his love, for his glory. And this is Christmas, that the king is among us. God promised, God provided, God purposed. God has promised, God will provide, God will accomplish his purposes. And this is the hope, the peace, the love, the joy of Christmas. So let us rejoice this day and every day. Let's pray, church. God, we are abundantly thankful for all of your provision in Christ. Setting about to make yourself known. Setting about that when the fullness of time came, you sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us under the law. To reverse Adam's curse, to be the true and better Adam to establish for us a new covenant. And all of this is encapsulated in Christmas. This is the promise and the purpose of Christmas. So let us celebrate that this day and every day. Forgive us when we do not. Move our feet in obedience to this call of making this very good news that we celebrate known in the hearts of the nations. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.